The framework for the talk this afternoon is meeting the characteristics of life with awareness and compassion. And as you've seen in these last few days, where you're sitting in paradise, at least externally, well, for some of you, maybe not for everyone, you're in beautiful conditions, beautiful weather, beautiful place, beautiful nature, beautiful people, maybe an okay schedule, you know, but, um, and, you know, we come with all these very exciting expectations of meditation and silence and maybe a little bliss and joy and expanding our hearts and consciousness to the world. And, and then we, like a freight train hitting a, you know, <laughs> a brick wall, <laughs> suddenly we come up against, oh shit, we come up against ourselves, <laughs> our lives, our messiness, our neuroses, our foibles, our competitiveness, our reactivity, our inability to just be, be still. Or we meet our physical pain, or our heartbreak, or our loneliness. Or maybe we meet uh, levels of joy and rapture and uh, expansiveness that are also challenging to meet. We had that a few times today in the groups. We're asked to meet the fullness of experience, the beautiful, the difficult, the mundane, and the profound. And we're invited over and over in every moment. We're asked, how do you show up? How do you meet? How do you turn towards? How do you welcome, as Rumi was speaking about this morning, how do you welcome and entertain all of these visitors? And so the retreat and the meditation is a lab. It's a laboratory for studying ourselves, studying how we are in relationship to life, including to ourselves. And so we get to look in the mirror directly, intimately into our experience and to see how am I when I'm bored? when I don't like what's happening, when I think the retreat should be taught differently than it is, when I don't like my neighbor because they're fidgeting too much, when I don't like the food, when I feel guilty for being here when knowing there's so much suffering in the world, or whatever's arising for you. How do we meet this? This is the invitation of mindful awareness to meet our experience moment by moment with curiosity, with clarity, with kindness. Easier said than done. This is why it's called a training, a practice, a path. Sometimes arduous, sometimes beautiful, sometimes sublime, 
sometimes crazy making, sometimes you just want to pull your hair out and run out the door screaming. And sometimes we want to move in because we love it so much. And sometimes we vow never to come back ever again. It's this stupid idea of going on retreat. Who ever thought of that? So what I've known in my own practice for the last, or particularly the last, I'd say, 20 years, out of the 30 years of my practice, that what is essential is we learn to integrate and embody and unify the qualities of awareness and the qualities of kindness. That that in a mature practice, when we can meet life and ourselves and experience with a kind attention, with a friendly awareness, with a compassionate attitude, then we have greater potential to be with experience and to learn and to understand and to grow and to let go and all the things that we hear about. So one of my favorite teachings in the, in the Dharma is from the sixth Zen patriarch who said, do not think, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. So that, for me, is a lifelong koan. What does that mean? What does he mean? Awareness is the foundation of kindness. And how is kindness an expression of that clarity, of that knowing? Without knowing, without awareness, we can't see, we can't feel, we can't uh, be present. We can't understand. Without understanding, hard to develop empathy, kindness, care. And out of that clarity and seeing, often what we understand is the only appropriate response to life is kindness, is compassion. Because we see that it's not easy to be human. No matter how seemingly privileged your life might seem on the outside, you're still subject to changing conditions of this life. You're subject to the three characteristics which Bonnie's referred to. The characteristic of unsatisfactoriness, of difficult to bear, experience that's hard to be with. The characteristics of transience, of unreliability, of uncertainty. And the characteristic of emptiness, of insubstantiality. So four questions for you to consider as I'm I'm giving this talk. What in yourself is it difficult for you to meet and open to? What painful habits do you hold that need your loving attention? Where do you turn away from yourself? Or how do you turn away from yourself? And where is love needed towards yourself, your life, your experience? 
So it seems these times more than any that we were, we're needing these qualities of presence and kindness, awareness and love in ourselves, in relationship, in the world. We can learn from our Christian brothers and sisters. This is a story following the Charleston Massacre, South Carolina. The relatives of people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston earlier this week, this is some time ago, were able to speak directly to the accused gunman on Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. I have mercy on your soul. That is someone who's deeply learned the capacity to meet life with loving presence, with compassionate awareness, the heart of forgiveness. We have that potential, we have that capacity to not be lost in otherness, in blame, in separation. But it takes practice. I'm sure for Nadine, that didn't happen all at once. I'm sure it was a lifetime of learning to love and care and feel compassion for the suffering of life and those who commit atrocity. So hopefully as the days go on here, we learn to slowly turn towards and meet parts of ourselves and our experience with tenderness, with warmth, with care. Generally we meet difficulty with aversion, with reaction, with fear, or most commonly with judgment and blame. But over the days, we see how much suffering is created in relating to life like that. And we learn to soften into, to yield into, to surrender into experience. However difficult, however boring, however much we don't want it to be the way it is. So we soften into experience. And we're meeting, you know, in in this path of awareness, what we're learning to do is meet the vulnerability of the human condition. The three characteristics are an expression of the vulnerability of the human condition. The suffering that we inevitably experience because we live in a transient universe. We all will experience loss and separation and aging and sickness and things that are hard to hold, like the ecological crisis, or the crisis in our own hearts. So we need these qualities, we we come to these centers to cultivate capacity to hold, experience ourselves, 
pain of others. Many of you are doing beautiful work as social workers and teachers and therapists and coaches and I bow to the good work that you're doing. And these, these, these practices will uh, develop resilience within you to be able to continue that work. So this is a poem I wrote some years ago about what's required on this path is a turn. This is a really important uh, transition in our practice when we realize that we have to lean into and turn towards and allow and surrender into what's here, what is, rather than what we think should be. Your only duty is not to run from here even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day exposed. You could pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that never works, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to surrender, to turn towards your loneliness and the empty places within you spent a lifetime running from. Embracing them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree, without flinching, pressing into, and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So this is what you're doing here. This is the courageous path of turning towards life, towards the moment, towards your experience. Many people in this world would be scared stiff to do what you're doing. It looks easy. It sounds easy. People at work say, oh, have a great vacation. You know, bliss out for all of us. You know, come back, all chilled out, peace out, right? They have no idea, right? They have no idea. You see in your Time Magazine, people mindfulness meditating, all blessed, usually white, usually pretty and skinny, and they have no idea what it means to turn towards and face ourselves nakedly, courageously, moment by moment, right? despite all the lovely supports that we have here, it's still hard. How many times, how many hours have you spent somewhere else? On holiday, back at the office, (laughs) back at home, redecorating the kitchen, you know, planning your next retreat, who knows? Somewhere other than here. Takes practice to learn, to settle in, to yield. The sign down at the bottom of the hill, you enter Spirit Rock, yield to the present. Yield to this moment. We're training our Labrador puppy mind that's scattered and running around all over the place, you know, trying to find happiness somewhere other than here. So it's a radical surrendering practice. 
This is from Jen Chosen Bays. She writes, In this passing moment, I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it's my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So that's what we're doing here. We're turning towards what is. Learning, understanding, surrendering. So there are many things, as I said, that we meet when we're here. We meet the beauty of the landscape. We meet the joy of being in community. We meet the delicious food. And we meet some very exquisite, expansive states in our own being at times. Peace, quiet, those delicious moments between thoughts. And then we meet more of these characteristics. We meet the characteristic of dukkha, of that which is difficult to bear, of unsatisfactoriness. Anybody had any of that here this last couple of days? Right, we meet the pain of the body. Right? I came here Monday night, I'd just been backpacking, all fresh, happy, strong, feeling great. Tuesday morning, I'm sitting in a chair in the staff dining room, and my SI joint goes out, and I'm spasming, the back spasming. Not what I expected. Wasn't my idea of teaching at Spirit Rock. Let's have a back spasm. (laughs) Let's have chronic pain while you teach, that's fun. No, how do you meet that? How do I meet that? Hopefully with love, with with wisdom, taking care of it, icing it, going to see a doctor or a physio person. Yielding to the pain, taking ibuprofen when I need, wise relationship. We never know what we're going to get. So many of you reported physical pains, aches, chronic pain, some fatigue issues. You didn't expect your first three days to be like this. (laughs) You thought about wakefulness, not sleepfulness. And then we see how attached we are to clarity, to being awake, to being bright. Oh, can I be present when I'm foggy? Well, maybe a little bit, dull, sleepy, but okay, I can do something here. So meeting the the dukkha of the body. Dear friend of mine has Parkinson. He told me recently, he said, it's like living in a, being in prison from the inside and the prison walls are getting tighter on the inside, which is what Parkinson's is, constriction of the muscles inside. But he bears it with this beautiful resilience, this beautiful steadiness. You know, watching his mind catastrophizing to the future, coming back to just... What's here? Can I feel this grip, this pang, this pain, this contraction, this release? Speaking with a dear friend of mine 
who's dealing with the dukkha of the aging body. And I said, how is it for you in your 70s? He said, well, you know, it's okay, but I'm just waiting for the next thing to go wrong. You know, I've got the hip thing, I've got sciatica, and like, what's next? You know, not easy. When we see the diminishment of our capacity, our strength, our vitality, our flexibility, these are difficult to bear. There's a reason why the Buddha called them difficult to bear. We look in the mirror, we go, wow. It's funny, I started wearing glasses a year or two ago. I got over the delusion of thinking I had good eyesight, and I put them on, it's like, wow, I'm really getting old. Look at those wrinkles. <laughs> better, look, better look without the, where the eye, the glasses. <laughs> I realized how kind the universe is. You know, just, it makes your eyesight wither, so everything looks soft and, <laughs> you know, youthful and... <laughs> So it takes courage to come back to ourselves, to our bodies, moment after moment, when there's pain, when there's aching, when there's contraction, when there's sickness. So I'd like to share this piece from Darlene Cohen, who is a Zen teacher, who had a slow degenerative uh, um, illness that she she's now passed. And um, she was asked how she teaches, given that she has this uh, chronic pain, a deteriorating pain condition. She says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable slow crippling, can I encourage myself and others? My answer is that my healing comes from the very despair and terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip into that pain again and again and I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, I deny the pain for a few days, its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally it overwhelms me, it's clear I'm caught, and at last I give up to this reunion with this, uh, my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins, first peace and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, you just, you just, I would say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can, I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it'd be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I resist it till it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the pain. So you can feel in that in her words, like this is someone who's really wrestled with difficulty, resisted, fights, pushes it away, struggles, at some point realizes that's pointless and surrenders and gives in. And then there's healing, this transformation, right? Suffering equals pain times resistance, right? We suffer in proportion, partly in relationship to how much we fight, resist, complain, judge, what the Buddha talks about, adding the second arrow. And this came, a lot in, came up a lot in the groups today, and I want to give a little attention to it. So whatever your difficulty is, 
here. Let, let's just hear a few, just one word. What, what are you struggling with? Just shout out with, with difficulty. Sleepiness. Mm-hmm. Anxiety. Anxiety. Sciatica. Sciatica. Thinking. Thinking. Self-criticism. Loneliness. Illness. Illness. Dullness. Dullness. Okay, so that's, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not like too much, but just, you know. <laughs> So what I, was very, what I was teaching people today in the groups was we have the primary experience, right? So in the group I was working with anxiety was one of the examples, um, or physical pain, right? So that's the primary experience, right? We all experience physical pain at times or difficult emotions like anxiety. Then we have a secondary, or we have a response to that, right? Our relationship to that which is usually not wanting, fear, anxiety, aversion, contraction, judgment, etc. That's the, that's the reaction to the initial experience. And then we have the awareness that's noticing this process. Right? So the bell is the anxiety, the, the bench here is my resistance to the anxiety, and I'm, then there's awareness, aware of the whole experience. What happens is, very commonly, most of the time, we overlook this secondary ex- reaction experience. Right? We're looking at the anxiety, and we're hating the anxiety and wishing it was going away, but we forget to pay attention and give fullness of our presence to the hatred and the, and the resistance. Right? So next time you're dealing with something, which might be right now, maybe you have physical pain or you're bored stiff or whatever, there's the experience, and then there's the relationship to it. The relationship is often the primary thing that's happening. The anxiety is way back there because you're all you're busy with is consumed with is the hatred and the fear of it. Does that make sense? So really pay attention to the attitude. Pay attention to the relationship. This is a key piece in, in Dharma practice because how we relate to experience makes the difference for that, for example, with that anxiety, it's the difference between that anxiety creating suffering or that anxiety just being the next thing to be present for. So noticing the attitude or the relationship or the reactivity. So I, I dealt with an anxiety bout some years ago triggered by certain events in relationship and, and in a being isolated on a retreat on my own up north in, the, in BC and uh, triggered these very early layers of, of anxiety, like very you know, pre-verbal almost, very difficult to be with. And it lasted for a long time, like many months, this kind of wave. And... Um, at first, I was just consumed with the anxiety, and it was it was overwhelming. I was very identified with it, and then um, uh, did all the usual strategies to try and meditate it away, and you know, meter it away, and basically get rid of it. Right? Sometimes life is humbling, and that it, that none of that works. And at some point, I had to surrender. I had to start softening my body, softening the nervous system, really welcoming the anxiety and all the sort of tortured, jumpy uh, sensations here. And 
And it was really clear when my attitude towards it was welcoming and allowing, there wasn't a problem. But as soon as I made the anxiety into a problem, into an other, into something to be gotten rid of, or something that was in the way of me feeling happy, there was suffering right there. But as long as I could remember to soften and yield and really surrender into thinking, this might be here till I die, and that's okay. That was the freedom. And of course, when we usually, when we get to those kind of places, it usually actually allows the very thing that we're working with to become understood and to dissolve, dissolve itself. The second thing I wanted to talk about, again, looking at this layer, right, you've got the experience anxiety, or in another case, someone was experiencing a certain expansiveness of consciousness, sort of joy, and um, you know, a certain entering into an unfamiliar place of expansion, internally, externally, mostly internally. Often when we are encountering new experience, the first, thing that it, the first thing that happens is we resist because it's new, because it's unfamiliar, and what's unfamiliar is unknown, and what's unknown is, is scary and threatening to the ego structure. So the first response is, oh, what's this? Even if it's joyful expansion, if we're expanding into something that's unknown territory, it will be met at some point with a contraction, with a fear. And again, um, what often gets overlooked, so there's the expansion or, or, or there's resistance to something coming up, and the mind comes in and says, I've just got to get, through, get rid of the resistance to get to the experience. Rather than realizing the resistance is what's present. Right? The initial experience, the joy or the expansion or the difficulty that we're resisting to is now secondary. And what I've learned a lot in my experience, particularly paying attention to the body, is we need to be very respectful of resistance, very honoring and caring about the resistance. You know, sometimes we feel like a resistance layer or contraction in the heart, and we think, oh, I've just got to get rid of the contraction, then I'll open my heart. No, we have to open our heart to the resistance open up our heart to the boundary, right? allowing, softening, softening, permeating. So just, is this making sense, how we, we jump over this very important step? And we all have resistance to a lot of different things. And so it requires that we relax, we settle back, oh, oh this resistance has probably served me in, in some way worthy of respect, worthy of understanding, worthy of compassion, because it's suffering in the middle of it. In the same way that when we're paying attention to the attitude or the reaction to an experience that's unwanted, like anxiety, the more that we enter into that experience, the more we feel into it, the more we feel the suffering of it. No one wants to be contracted. No one chooses to be defended, necessarily. And when we feel the contraction, what happens, when we feel the painfulness of it, what happens, it allows at some point some compassion to arise. 
when the heart meets suffering and we notice the suffering, acknowledge the suffering, it allows the heart to open. This is uh, from the poet Hafez in this line of thinking. He says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut you more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few humans and even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolutely clear. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. As in, don't be so quick to move beyond it. Things arise for a reason. To be understood, to be known, to be felt, to be integrated. Not easy. No one said this path was easy. Simple, but not easy. So another poem just to speak to this attitude. This is from Jennifer Wellwood, a beautiful poem. It's called Unconditional. Again, it's turning towards, leaning into and opening to that, which initially may be challenging. She says, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Each condition I flee from, right? I was saying to a group earlier today, the, my, the baseline of my emotion, when I when I'd sit for the first 10 years in my meditation practice, I was always sad. And I was just like, why am I sad? I don't feel sad in my life, but I sit and I get intimate with myself with sadness. And it kept going on and on and on. And at some point, when I, when I kind of came into the, the Vipassana tradition, I realized the reason it was hanging around was because I was running away from it. Each condition, I f- each condition I flee from pursues me until we turn to it. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. As I learn to welcome and allow the sadness, you know, at some point that was fully felt and was moved through. It was no longer the kind of substrata. So we have the dukkha of the body, the the unsatisfactoriness, the painfulness of the body, painfulness of the heart, of the various difficult emotions that we encounter. And we have the dukkha, unsatisfactoriness of the mind. Anybody notice some unsatisfactory elements to their mind? (laughs) Like the million thoughts a day that you think? Or the wanting to be here, but the mind being anywhere but here, or realizing that we actually have no control over it, has a life of its own, has a mind of its own. <laughs> right? We see the impersonal nature of it. How many thoughts in the meditation, this last meditation, did you decide to think? Or did they just arise out of conditions, out of who knows where, out of the ether, maybe from your neighbor? Who knows? 
one consciousness. Right? So we feel the unsatisfactoriness of that and the painfulness of it. It's painful to be really earnest about wanting to be present, wanting to be intimate with the experience, and your mind just puts on a you know, movie theater show. You know, crazy making. And not just crazy making, painful. You know, how many catastrophes have you lived through this retreat? How many worst case scenarios, your relationship ending, your, your job get disappearing, your, your money disappearing, your health disappearing. Nothing's happened. You're just sitting right here. Right? But we've had all these do, dim doomsday reality shows. And in the moment we believe them, adrenaline's running, cortisol's flying around, we're sweating. And then the bell rings like, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Let's walk. I've never looked forward to walking so much. <laughs> so, yeah, painful. We're dragged around by this mind. And then the, the one layer that I want to speak to today, since I just wrote a book about it on the inner critic, very, very painful layer of our mental life for most people that I meet, not everybody, but most people um, have a very painful inner critic. And of course, when you come to a meditation retreat, it becomes a meditation critic or becomes a Buddhist critic or a mindfulness critic or a compassion critic. Not very mindful, they're much more mindful than you. Not very present, not very kind, not very compassionate, eating too quickly, your room's a mess, such a slob, you're slouching, you're spaced out. (laughs) Shut up, (laughs) leave me alone. Thank you for your opinion. I really didn't notice that I was spaced out. That really helps to know that I'm a terrible meditator, (laughs) that I'm the worst meditator here. I didn't know that. Thanks for calculating who spaces out the most and realizing it was me. (laughs) You're so smart. (laughs) You know, we live with this imposter syndrome. You know, if, if the teachers only knew how bad my mindfulness was, <laughs> they'd kick me out, <laughs> you know. We go to our rooms, we shut the door, and we just kind of oh, pick our nose and scratch and, you know, shuffle around and, you know, we open the door and... <laughs> lifting, placing, lifting, placing. <laughs> up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> We put on this persona, right? Thinking, because we believe that critic that's telling us we're a hopeless case, we're a hopeless meditator, right? We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be a band. But it's painful, right? There's a reason I wrote the book about the inner critic, (laughs) because I know a lot about the inner critic. I have a very alive and healthy one. I mean, it's diminished by a long way with the practice, but it's still there. And it follows us around. And it will sap your worth, your well-being, your goodness, your sense of value, your, your faith in yourself and your practice and your conviction. It undermines your goodness. 
It's a distorted perception, usually very outdated, one of who you are. You know, in my inner critic workshops, I'll have people write out top 10, 20 judgments, and I'll say, now the next part of the exercise, which is terrifying, is you're going to share them with a stranger next to you. And people share their judgments. And then I tell them to go home and share them with people they know and ask them, is this really true? Am I really a loser? Am I really unlovable? Am I really never going to get my life together? And I can guarantee those people would say, that's not who you are. You may have occasional elements of that. So we need to see with mindfulness this distorted, inaccurate, negative, cruel mental process. Maybe on some level trying to help, trying to help us from further suffering in the future. But the means by which it does it is so diminishing and punishing and shaming that actually it creates far greater pain than any pain it could prevent us from in the future. So we want to see it, we want to name it. Oh, Mara, as the Buddha said, oh, critic, thank you for your opinion. I didn't know I was such a terrible meditator. Thank you. Have a nice day. I'm going to go back to my practice now. You don't need to say that much. You just say, judging, thank you. That's shorthand. (laughs) Judgment, thank you. Judging myself for judging myself that I'm judging. Thank you. Back to practice. Or, you know, know, often people think that the, 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 the stance of this practice is somewhat passive. We're knowing, we're seeing, we're being with, we're allowing, we're opening, receiving, etc. Right? But there are many active ways you know, to, to engage with this practice. Mindfulness informs understanding, which informs wise action. And so in our practice, we can also be very active. Right? And we do that in many ways. Right? With the critic, right? with the noticing is one. We can redirect our attention back to the breath or back to something more objective in, the, in reality. We can use a replacing practice like metta. The Buddha taught metta as a replacement practice for a negative, unwholesome thought. So instead of saying the critic saying, well, you're just a pathetic meditator, and you can add, and may I be happy. Yeah, but you're such a loser, and may I be peaceful. Yeah, but look at you. I mean, look at everyone else as a Buddha. Thank you, and may I be happy. That's a replacement practice. Or with any unwholesome thought, we can track you know, what underlying emotion is fueling that. Often it's a sense of unworthiness, sense of hatred, sense of cruelty. Sometimes with the critic, we can simply say, enough. Right? We can bring that sort of wisdom that cuts through delusion, just say, stop. And we go back to what's happening in the present. So our practice in this lab of retreat is a training for our lives. And as far as removed it can seem from life, it is life, right? This is not, the, people often say the real world. This is life. Joy and sorrow, happiness and pain, right? Our minds, our bodies, our hearts. And it's a training for how to deal with that. 
This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there was some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. Right? So we train here in here to work with the inner landscape, the inner pain of the heart, of the body, of the mind. But in our lives, we're also training to deal with the outer challenges, the outer suffering, the racism, the homophobia, the oppression, the injustice, the ecological crisis, and dealing with those much larger macro issues that are both very present for some. Um, how do we relate to those? This, with the same principle, with courage, with awareness, with clarity, with compassion. And of course, in our lives, sometimes the compassion manifests as action, as standing up and speaking up against injustice or oppression or racism or homophobia or whatnot. So I really want to uh, just to bring that to mind that what we're doing here has direct implication for everything that we do in our life. We're just learning the inner, this is the inner training, the inner responsiveness. So I've spent most of the talk uh, looking at this first characteristic, how he's going to actually speak to the third characteristic of anatta, of the selfless nature of experience and how to relate to that with kindness and wisdom. Um, I have exactly two minutes to talk about the second characteristic, which is the characteristic of impermanence, of change, of transience, of unreliability, of uncertainty, of instability. And we can see that directly in our own experience. Right? How nothing sticks around. Right? That sweet moment of joy that you had for a fleeting moment and then you grasp it and then it disappeared. Right? Those fleeting spaces between thoughts, those fleeting moments of ease. Right? In the same way that those peak moments of rage and terror and anxiety, also, where are they now? Where are they now? The most beautiful experiences you've had, the most wretched experiences you've had, where are they now? They've passed into oblivion. Right? So we, we live with this very interesting reality as a human being that we know our own mortality, as I spoke to yesterday in the meditation. We live with the knowledge of transience, of insecurity, of uncertainty. And this is a very vulnerable situation to live in as a human being. We love dearly. There's a beautiful poem from Mary Oliver. She, she says that to live in this world, you need to be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones until your own life, as if your own life depends on it. And then when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Right? So we love dearly, we love our loved ones, we love this planet, we love life as much as we can. And we also know that it's sand pouring between, between our fingers. We love partly we, because we've experienced the preciousness, the fragility of a friend, or as a, of a child as they leave to go to college. 
or of the swallows who are nesting who will fly off, the fledglings will fly off soon. So it requires tremendous courage that we that we're able to turn towards life knowing that it's fleeting, knowing that it's passing, knowing that every meeting will end in dissolution. And yet we turn to meet it with, with love, with presence, with as much fullness as we can muster. And we can also take refuge in all the difficulty that we experience knowing that too will pass. It allows us to meet that difficulty because you know it's not going to last forever because nothing does. So we hold it carefully, but we hold it lightly. And we keep doing this until it becomes second nature. Right? We all know this intellectually. This is not rocket science. But we hold on because we keep forgetting. We keep getting upset when things change because it hasn't become ingrained into the fabric of our bones. And that's why we practice. We see the coming and going of things, the breath, experience, life, moments, joy, sorrow. We see it all passing and passing and passing. And in that knowing, there's freedom. We hold carefully and lightly, lovingly with a sense of spaciousness. As I mentioned in that meditation yesterday, the reflection of one less, right? When we reflect on one less, it allows us to appreciate this breath, a one less. Okay, let me be present for it. This meditation day, this afternoon light, let me be present. This beautiful body, may I be present for it. This talk, one less, sometimes that's a relief, you know. (laughs) So I'll close with this poem that's um, often read in here. It's a beautiful poem from, uh, again, Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye. And she's speaking about the tenderness of being human, meeting the vulnerability of this changing life, And when we do that, the fruit of what arises is living with a kind heart. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the the landscape can be between the regions of kindness how you can ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows 
and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and to purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the, from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit together. So I'd like to dedicate this talk to Michael Stone, Dharma teacher and yoga teacher, who very much subject to the three characteristics, suffering, transience, and the conditioned nature of his mental health disorder who passed recently. May he be free of pain. May his family and loved ones be free of pain. May all beings everywhere be free of pain. loving attention. So time now for dinner and then uh, some sitting at seven o'clock. Thank you. <laughs>